welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a longtime friend. And there are certain people who I think over the course of the last two years, even though you don't see each other, the relationship grows. And I think that's been the case with you and I, Win. Um, our guest today is a longtime uh, marketing lead at Twitter. He's leaving, going from strength to strength moving from one great company uh, to another, moving to Snap very shortly in a big, big role there in their marketing world. But uh, I'm thrilled to have a chance to talk to Wynn Sackdenen. So welcome, Wynn. Great. Thanks, Matt. Uh, great to uh, be here with you and an honor, uh, especially after uh, all this crazy time that we've been through. It's I great to still have, be connected. I think we have gotten closer during this. Even though I haven't seen you in person, I feel that our friendship has grown. I really do think it's funny because even though I haven't seen you in person for you know quite a while, except for the latest advertising week, there's something about you know when things go on in the world, it makes you bond a little more. And and I've enjoyed our virtual connects. It's been part of my uh, pandemic work at home highlights, if you know what I mean, Matt. Yes, as have I. So when I, you have such an interesting career, and we're going to cover a lot of ground, but I want to start by going back to young Win in the seventh grade. Somewhere in British Columbia? British Columbia, Vancouver, uh, from Canada. And uh, I read somewhere that even as a young man, that you had a uh, predilection, a proclivity, a like, a passion for advertising and for great creative in particular. And I read that you won a competition with a speech about McDonald's advertising, which back in the day was iconic uh, beyond belief. Is that a true story? Uh, it is a true story, Matt. It's We would have in seventh grade um, these speech competitions. You know, it's kind of like the NCAA, right? You've got the quarterfinals, the semifinals. And I'm doing different speeches, and we finally go to the finals. And, you know, it's a great lesson on listening sometimes to your inner inner passions and inner strengths, what you just lean toward. And I just wanted to talk about McDonald's and their advertising. I don't know why. Uh, so I did it. I would go to the library. I would take out a McDonald's annual reports and would get pictures. And I would write a speech on the advertising from their, you know, in-store marketing to their, to their print advertising. And of course, the television. Uh, there was one famous ad called the Nipper Thinkers about these little, uh, you know, girls are out uh, camping and it's really wet and they're upset, but then they go to McDonald's and they cheer up. So what I would even do a little play with friends during my speech and uh, I won, you know, in seventh grade, it's, it's not like, you know, winning a gold medal or anything here, but I won that. And that lit a fire very early on that I just love advertising of the art of it, the images, the copywriting. And lo and behold, many years later, I'm still here working in advertising, talking to you. So it's been a pleasure. Uh, unbelievable. So that, that's an incredible story that, that that passion really started early. Now, I know you also love music and play the guitar, and we share a, a friendship with uh, the great Don Felder of uh, the Eagles. But would you consider yourself to be a student of pop culture? Uh, yes, absolutely. You know, and it's, it is interesting that my pop culture started in 1980, um, many years yesterday. 
so today is like what what is today now it's an interesting story so it's december 9th so yesterday december 8th was the day that john lennon was assassinated and i remember 1980 hearing you know hearing the news as a young child about this and my father looking at the tv saying why did he have to do this it was very tragic and i asked him dad what what are the what are the beatles i don't i've never heard of them and he put on the beatles and that was my entry into music pop culture uh whether it's the arts film music that just kind of kicked it off so it's kind of like the mcdonald's story i mean when things start very very young and there's this imprint that happens so I wouldn't say I'm an expert, though, Matt. There's people I work with who are much more on top of it, but right. definitely. I, mean, I guess this fuels why I've been in, you know, working for a company like Twitter, which reflects pop culture and what's happening in the world. Right. But you can see, you know, so not every seventh grader gets up there for a speech competition and picks a great ad campaign. Um, and it's funny. I just saw I have once or twice a year, I have lunch with Keith Reinhardt who okay. founded Omnicom and is a legendary creative for DDB, wrote many of those iconic early campaigns, you know, you deserve a break today. And he told mm. me the story. He literally, he and his team, a group of agency people created, you know, Mayor McCheese and the Hamburglar and all those characters, um, which are such indelible parts of pop culture. But I'm not surprised to hear that you are a student uh, no one said you have to be at the top of the class when, but a student. No. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those that it continually evolves. I think, you know, back then, it's interesting how advertising would imprint on pop culture, a lot of it through the TV medium. I think it will be interesting many years from now, Matt, you know, with the advent of mobile phones and, you know, even my role with Twitter and me heading to Snap soon is how many big iconic brands and sayings and Mary McCheeses and you deserve a break today's will be created long-term, you know, because now you're not, you're not building that pop culture through television as much. You're doing it through mobile phones. And as we all know, the dispersion of that makes it interesting. It's less focused versus, you know, one ad that can reach, you know, over 90% of people. Uh, we're an interesting time on iconic brand building, you know, and, and pop culture to build those iconic brands. Yeah, you know, uh, building off of that, and I'll refer again to Keith, but um, we saw each other recently and I, he always comes, what most impresses me about him is he's 87 and still comes and takes notes. And he came to a keynote where you and I reunited at Advertising Week at Hudson Yards in October and the uh, Ari Weiss, the global chief creative of DDB, was doing something and Keith came to watch uh, Ari. And I said, what'd you think? And he said, I like him and I like what he had to say, but he and I disagree on something. And I asked, what was that? And Keith tells me, Ari believes that all advertising has to be of the culture. I believe that advertising has the ability to create culture. And I think that's what you were just saying. And I happen to agree with him and I agree with you. Yeah, I think it's both, right? Sometimes, especially with Twitter, you know, it's been a lot of the journey I've been doing for six years, uh, you know, with various clients. They always, brands know to be relevant, you need to be part of culture. Sometimes powerful brands who make such an indelible imprint on culture, you know, the, the Nike, uh, Colin Kaepernick, they're a force in many ways, you know, socially, politically even. Um, 
but some brands, you know, many brands that I worked on when I worked at Procter and Gamble, you know, like Bounty and Charmin bathroom tissue. That's part of my uh, glorious past here, Matt. Um, But they may not imprint as much on culture. And, you know, through Twitter, some of the work that we do, and even when I was at P&G is how does a brand become relevant as part of culture, joining the conversation to have some sort of, you know, cultural halo. It's difficult. You know, sometimes we sometimes get misled by these big, huge cultural brands, but the majority are not. They don't have that big imprint. So how can they still be part of that conversation? That's the fun part. That's the fun part of marketing these days. Absolutely. Okay, so we're going to get into all that, but let's uh, talk a little bit about your home in British Columbia and the great city of Vancouver. Uh, I've been lucky enough to go there a number of times. I was at the Olympic Games uh, in 2010 and have been there uh, with family. And it's a magical, wonderful city. Uh, and has also become a real hotbed of creativity within the tech sector and beyond. What is it about Vancouver that makes it such a, a fantastic place overall in your, your memory and also such a hotbed of creativity? Yeah, it's interesting that I haven't been in Vancouver for a while. So to see the growth lately is interesting. So if you if you go back, Vancouver's magic is its physical beauty i mean you are half an hour from skiing half an hour from you know whitewater rafting half an hour from windsurfing um it's just gorgeous there's a close proximity to the united states to seattle so there's this great kind of i'm in the best place on the planet and i grew up there and thought it was great but i left you know i I left to toronto and then ended up moving you know to europe in you know the new york city area you know for career because the creativity and the jobs and the corporate jobs, especially, Matt, were not there. So again, when you're a young kid falling in love with, you know, uh, McDonald's advertising, that's not created in Vancouver. That's in New York City or in Toronto or, or you know, London, Paris. Um, but lately, I think a lot of that hotbed is an offshoot from Seattle. There's just this, that proximity. You know, when you think of Seattle with Microsoft, you think of, you know, Amazon, you know, Starbucks, that starts to have an influence. Uh, I do think the city has challenges, though, on uh, real estate. Real estate is just crazy. So the young talent, how are you going to get those young talent, young copywriters, young art directors, you know, young brand marketers? How are they survive with that real estate? So I hope they're able, you know, to more affordable housing, because ultimately there's a big problem in getting talent to do, much like uh, Silicon Valley. It's a pricing issue. Yeah, so. it's, it's a real like, you know, these are the things, sadly, from a public policy vantage point uh, that we're not addressing. I mean, that you've got this odd dichotomy where people can't afford to live where they want to work, where the jobs are. And on the flip side, you've got an awful lot of vacant real estate, you know, in, in mm-hmm. New York. A lot of that is ground level retail, not necessarily uh, immediately convertible to housing. But these are the kinds of public policy issues that we really have to tackle because, you, you know, these are enormous problems and there are jobs that people can't afford to live where the jobs are and housing, you know, in places like San Francisco, New York, Vancouver, you said it's out of control. It is. It is interesting with remote. So Twitter has been a huge proponent of remote work because if you have a talented engineer in Utah and they can on their salary, have a proper household for their families. 
but they still have the talent. They can still code from Utah or Montana or you know, down in Texas somewhere. Why not? Right. It really does change the game. You know, even statistics like uh, Miami Fort Lauderdale, Lauderdale was not a big tech hub, but through remote work and more companies going there, they're now up 15 percent in tech jobs. You know, Dallas as well. Texas is growing bigger. So I think this migration is really, really interesting because in the past it was kind of New York City or well, the Silicon Valley area or Seattle. So I hope Vancouver starts to uh, even do some remote work because in British Columbia, there are remote jobs that you can still have. That's close to Vancouver, maybe an hour or two out. Very interesting. Very interesting. Okay. So let's uh, jump into business a little bit. You have a incredible 15 year run at what is widely viewed as the bellwether brand for our industry and the premier training ground in any company in this country beyond the CPG space to business and commerce in general. Let's talk about how you got to Procter and Gamble and you know sort of go through some of the many highlights of a 15 year tenure which is very unusual these days. Yeah, it is very unusual, especially, you know, moving into the tech business, people are always, you know, wow, you spent, you know, 15 plus years with P&G. Um, it was a great run, Matt, and one I'm so grateful for. I mean, again, it's, it's you know, it's kind of a theme that's coming out here that things that stick in your head, you know, at a very young age, you know, when you're studying business school, so I went to the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, I studied marketing. All the textbooks and courses talked about Procter and Gamble, and you know when P&G came to town, you know they're only going to hire two or three from the West Coast, and every marketer wants it. So I applied, I interviewed for it, I did not get accepted. I was upset. I went out and applied to all their other competitors to show P&G I'm going to take you down for not hiring me. Then a couple of months later, they called me back and said, actually, we have a space opened up. And my glamorous job, first job, Matt, um, and I say this to a lot of students, was selling Procter & Gamble Crisco deep frying oil to restaurants. So not the most glamorous job to the point I used to hide the products in my car because I didn't want my friends to see it. Uh, but that deep frying oil selling job, I think about it probably every week, how much I learned from that role. Then that progressed to, to bigger roles, of course. Then I moved to Toronto um, for bigger sales roles. And then I ended up leading the Canadian public relations team. You know, I got to go to Europe working on environmental marketing and external relations communications. You know, and then coming back to the US working on the Duracell brand. So it's been a great journey. It's one of those things. There's, it's many big companies, big brands in one big company. So you start in Vancouver on the far west. Yep. You go to Toronto yes. in the far east yep. uh, and then end up in Geneva. Yes. That's a pretty big leap. Talk about the differences of going from your native Canada to working all the way across the world in Geneva. Yeah, it was uh, a dream realized, Matt. That's why sometimes if you got dreams, you go for it. You know, I backpacked with with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife in Europe. And I said to myself, one day I want to work in Europe. So I, I pushed it for many years, uh, then got the role to go to Geneva. It is interesting. I learned so much there. There's this analogy that, that I like to tell students about the different cultures that you learn. Like I'm Canadian. So when I, I see the world through Canadian glasses, sunglasses, they're red. 
going to Geneva, I put on a European lens and learn so much more diversity because, you know, most people I worked with in Canada were mainly from Canadian background, but when you're in a European head office, you get the wild diversity of, you know, UK, French, Italian, Germans, Spain, Belgium in one meeting, Matt, and having different ways of looking at it. Uh, it wasn't an easy job. I was there for six and a half years, but it learned me to value differences and to try to get people to common visions to, despite those big differences sometimes. And you were sort of pretty early to the game on the digital marketing front. Back when you began at the very beginning, you know, let's move past the uh, selling Crisco oil. Was it Crisco? Did I get that right? Yeah, Crisco. Crisco. Glamour start, Matt. Right, Crisco <laughs> out of your trunk. But you were very early to the digital game. Did you gravitate towards it? Did it gravitate to you? Because you were there pretty much at the beginning. Yeah, I almost wish I was like two years earlier. I mean, I was doing a big role leading digital marketing and um, on home care brands. So, you know, brands like Swiffer and Dish Soap. And a, a gentleman named Gary Coombe, he was a vice president there. He was my boss. He said, you know, this digital marketing, especially this Facebook thing is getting kind of big. You know, can you figure it out? And I got into it not that early, but pretty early. And to the point where others in my peers, were, they felt it was more like a fringe marketing thing, right? It was always about television and packaging. That was your core focus in marketing. And I dove into digital marketing, social media, and fell in love with it to the point where I'll probably do this for the rest of my career, Matt. Um, but the fact that it seems so simple now, Matt, but in the web 2.0 era, to have consumers talk back to a brand in real time, like that you would get, we would share creative out on Facebook and Twitter. And like within one minute, get feedback. You could tell if people liked it or not. Very different from creating ad TV advertising, right? Where then you put it into a big test with Nielsen and then they, they come back, you know, a month later, the test results. So I love that real time this. Um, and yeah, I got into it earlier and probably will do it until the day I retire. So we touched on it earlier, but talk a little bit about P&G and what they do to make their people better. Great question. I get that a lot. So there are many things. I think number one, they just have taken the art of advertising and made it more of a science backed by data. Okay. So it's so much of it is data informed. Uh, when you have a company that big, you know, you've got a hundred and I don't know how big they are now, but probably a hundred thousand people. You need a common language for people to speak in marketing. It drives efficiency. It sparks creativity. Uh, when you're tripping over different language and thought processes, the efficiency really starts to drop. That standardization, you know, brand building frameworks, you know, how do you, how do you target a consumer properly? How do you analyze and frame your key messages and benefits all the way from your benefits to your, your purpose? And how does that come to life then in TV advertising and, and packaging and, and you know, tweets and Facebook posts? you know, and print campaigns, or even in, you know, where your office is, you know, close to Times Square, all of that is driven to a science in a really big way. Uh, so that's number one. I think that's a big one. The second one is it's a very unique company these days. They only hire from mainly, they only hire from uh, universities directly. So when you start early, there's a joke that they jerk up, uh, they 
they jointly co-create this proctoid type culture. Um, they mold you very early and they teach you that discipline. And because it's promotion from within, any new hire can actually end up being the CEO of the company. So there's a real investment in people's careers. And that's why I ended up staying so long because they took such good care of me. So you work on one brand for three years, you move on to another one. And that's why if you look at um, the marketing world, there are so many P&G talents, like a feeder of talent uh, that's gone on to lead a lot of very big organizations. So a lot of discipline, Matt. Incredible farm system. Great, great story and great insights. So you've got seemingly this dream gig. You've got uh, a great global business unit in Duracell. You're leading social media, digital marketing around the world. Uh, and Twitter comes knocking. Tell us about the journey from P&G to Twitter. Yes, um, it's, you know, I get that question a lot and it really makes me think because it goes back to, again, this very young kind of listening to your inner inner feelings. Um, so digital gets really big. This is probably around 2010, right? It starts, really starts. Um, had a lot of meetings with Twitter, a lot of meetings with Facebook, you know, YouTube, BuzzFeed. And they were having a little too much fun compared to me, Matt. I'm like, there is something that on that side, they seem to be really energized. They are learning. They're at the cusp of it. And there was a, a friend of mine named Will Platt Higgins. You know, he's at Facebook. He's at one of the vice presidents. And he sent me an email when he left gray advertising and said, I'm going to this place called Facebook because that's where the eye of the storm is. This is where everything is happening. And this is where you're going to learn. It's going to be crazy. And that lit a fire in me for a while that I need to be a part of this. It's kind of like when you're a kid and there's a party, Matt, and you hear about the party, but you're kind of not at the party. You're on the fringe of the party. I didn't want to be on the fringe anymore. I wanted to be actually at the party. So I uh, applied to all the big digital firms, you know, interviewed with many. And I just, you know, Twitter took a big interest in me. And I really just, uh, I love their values. I love their people if someone's enjoying their job and they, they were in their jobs for a long time too. So if you have people who are in their jobs four or five years, you know, I was like, let's give it a shot. So I went from big established company to a 10 year old company. And it's, it's been a wild roller coaster ride. It's, and they were smart enough to take advantage of your CPG background. I think one of your early gigs there was partnerships in CPG. Yeah, so I do partnerships in CPG, uh, also worked on automotive accounts. And a, a big reason, you know, why, you know, I came over. So great leaders like, you know, Matt Dorella, who was our recently departed chief uh, revenue officer. You know, him and Adam Bain, uh, JP Mahew, uh, who is our VP of our sales. Uh, they wanted me to come in based on, you know, what the client wants. You can see the perspective from the client. We need that because I think at the time when I entered Twitter, which it was probably on 2015, it was a lot of media sellers. So they, they, took a, they took a risk on me. They said, let's try some from the client side. I was one of the few ones. Um, it was a tough first two years. <laughs> I wouldn't say I came in as an expert, but uh, that's how I got in, you know, based on just, you know, client experience. And, uh, you know, it's been great to reply it and also learn perspective from other clients at the same time. So talk about the challenge of, doing great creative work in uh, a medium and in a particular way that's unique to Twitter, you're completely unlimited, but you're also limited. 
at the same time, you've got walls around what you can do, yet the creative work has been incredible and continues to be. Yeah, great question. I haven't been asked that that way. I think the, here are the advantages, and I sort of alluded it to before. If you send something out on Twitter, you know, you're going to get reactions pretty immediately, like real time, especially if you're doing something really wrong. You can, within, I think, an hour, kind of say, is this thing a good quality piece of creative? And if you don't like it, you can take it off, right? It's, it, it's very different from creating a multi-million dollar ad and then airing it and realizing customers don't like it. They start calling call lines or start tweeting at you that they don't like it. So it's, I think the advantage is that real time and that ability to connect to culture as long as your brand has a reason to talk about that. So for example, if you're, you're commenting on the Oscars, the red carpet, you know, if, if you're a cosmetic brand or a fashion brand, yeah, there's probably, there probably has relevance to connect to that, that type of event. You know, if you're, if you and I were working at, you know, Pennzoil, motor oil, you know, commenting on red carpet, maybe not quite the right fit. So there's that sweet spot that you can get with Twitter, which the, the consumers and the users will really reward you. I think the disadvantage, not just with Twitter, but with all mobile applications is just very fast. You know, and it's on mobile phones. Sound isn't as as prominent on that. So, you know, I kind of grew up in the TV world and I've had to adapt to instead of doing big, huge single campaigns, I'm now doing more multiple campaigns uh, on Twitter. So, yeah, is it, and I think we're still learning, but still the laws of great marketing, Matt, are come true. You got to be on brand. You got to be consistent with your benefit message. You got to be really simple. I mean, simple, simple. I've never had someone say your ad is too simple. I've never heard that. But I have plenty of experience where it's the other way around. You're trying to say too many messages in a newsfeed or even in a television ad. So a lot of these principles still remain. Very interesting. So one of the things that is a characteristic that uh, in this case uh, goes from Twitter to Snap is both companies have navigated the whole data privacy fray very well. There are other Silicon Valley contemporaries, if you will, who have not navigated the challenges around data privacy as well as Twitter and Snap have. Talk about uh, your observations of the space overall, and in particular, uh, why I know you're so proud of the culture at Twitter. Yeah, I think a couple of things on Twitter with privacy. One is by nature, tweets are public, right? So when the user tweets out, hey, you know, I'm hanging out at the Super Bowl, drinking a Budweiser, and Budweiser wants to reach that consumer, for example, that person who's tweeting out, I'm drinking a Budweiser at the Super Bowl, knows it's public, right? So if you by nature, you're public, your, your privacy scrutiny is a little bit less. Okay. So that, that, that is one, uh, some other platforms, the challenges is when you're in a private conversation and those private conversations and data end up, you know, being used publicly for others, other advertising that becomes a challenge. So I think that inherently helps us in that way. Uh, the second one is, you know, we are not perfect though. I mean, there's a lot of work to do, especially when you have like 500 million 
think about 500 million tweets a day. So in two days, you've got a billion tweets going out. It's tough to manage that in terms of, you know, privacy management. The big thing with it is um, I think it's intent. You know, it's about transparency, Matt. Uh, we, and this goes from Jack Dorsey, our founder, who's just you know, recently departed, but, you know, his, his principles live on in terms of transparency and trying to, at, at the base, do the right thing. And that's, that's helped us a lot with, uh, you know, as we work with various stakeholders. Yeah. And that motivation seems clear that um, the way Twitter has been portrayed in the conversation is definitely a little bit different than some of the other, again, we'll, we'll use that word contemporaries. Yeah. And another thing too, we don't want to do this on our own. This is complex challenges. Uh, we work with various stakeholders. So even on brand safety, you know, challenges and opportunities, you know, we're with GARM with the ANA. Uh, we have, we work with your organization, Advertising Week, you know, to get on public stage, to foster the discussion on this. You know, some other things too, like um, even at very high levels, when you have, you know, heads of state, we consult with constitutional scholars. Um, so it's not like we're doing this on our own. Ultimately, it's our decision as a private company, but we do work uh, very closely with third parties uh, and get their expertise into the company. Yeah, and I think where you're, uh, we'll be spending the next, you know, period of your career, which is still, you've been around a while, but you're still a young guy, when um, Snap <laughs> also very similarly, I think, has sort of tried to do the right thing pretty consistently. Yes, uh, absolutely. I think as an industry too, we, we learn from each other in that sense. Uh, we're at an interesting time, you know, the, you know, the, the term web 3.0 is now coming up in, the, in our advertising lexicon. And, you know, I sometimes reflect when I went into uh, early marketing sales careers, life was a little bit simpler, Matt. I mean, I'm sure when you started advertising week years ago, it was just a little bit simpler. You know, now, wow, you need to think of the fragmentation, uh, the opportunities and the challenges. I think, I think if someone is listening here from a university business school, you know, I would encourage them marketing. If you want a thrilling career, it's a great place to be. Yeah, no, this is, uh, you know, put on tap, you know, strap on your seatbelt. And this is a yeah. poster <laughs> that goes around in a loop day loop and upside down every day. So, yeah, it's like when you finish a ride on a roller coaster, you know, the, the, the highs and the lows are up and down, but you kind of just sit there and go, wow, that was thrilling. It's that feel. Yeah, you know? yeah, no, absolutely. So talk about the last couple of years when you evolved from a partnerships role working in some industry verticals to helping to build and lead the Twitter advertising brand here in North America. That's a little bit of a different focus uh, and another interesting one. Yes. And it's kind of, you know, I remember I was, you know, working in sales, working with big advertisers in the CPG and auto business. And I had this opportunity to lead our North American uh, business marketing team. So the role of that team is, you know, you can think of the competitive environment, you know, advertisers now have so many choices, you know, before it was TV, you had print, a little bit outdoors, some public relations, work on that, call it a day. Now they have all that. And then they get people calling on them from, from Snap, from Pinterest, from Twitter, from Facebook, from Google, you know, from Spotify. All these choices are coming at them. So when you think of the competitive environment, a lot of the role that I do now is, you know, when I lead my North America marketing team is how do we crystallize 
to win hearts and minds of Twitter as an advertising brand uh, for these various advertisers. I'd say it's probably been the most fun job I've ever had in my career. It's, it kind of calculates everything from you know sales, being on client side, now being on the digital uh, platform side, uh, leading a really talented group who are passionate um, and working in your industry, you know, being linked in advertising week, you know, it was great seeing you a couple of weeks ago, right? Finally seeing all our, you know, friends and, you know, colleagues back together. It's a vibrant industry. So really enjoyed it. It's been a fun job. I've been doing that for all about two and a half years right now. Fantastic. And most of that time has been at home. Talk about adjusting that way, uh, remote working for the body of your tenure in the role of leading uh, business marketing for Twitter here in North America. Yeah, it's how reflective we've all become with this challenge and, and opportunity. You know, I remember being on the subway and getting this note from the company saying, everyone at home immediately. And I said, you gotta be kidding me. I'm not gonna, you know, really? And started doing it, I realized, you know, the advantage is really productive. It's amazingly productive. I would save so much time commuting, coming into the city. So, but aside from that, the most interesting thing, I had a meeting with my team about four or five months into the pandemic, you know, when things got, you know, really crazy in early March, 2020. And we just went around the table and said, what, what have you all learned in the four months working together? And surprisingly, Matt, everyone became closer as a team. If you got this common major world problem, it just, I think some of the, the challenges you would have with each other, you know, some of the pettiness, you know, whether you know, I would pettiness sometimes with my team or they have it with me, not saying that we don't always get along. I mean, sometimes we still debate, but that kind of went aside and it really sharpened uh, our impact. And I think with Twitter too, given that so much was happening in the world, our advertisers wanted to know what our consumers are saying. What are they saying right now? So we would be on, we'd be working days and nights to get insights to them on the public conversation and what people are saying about this mysterious disease that's out there. It's a time I will not forget. And even with you and me, Matt, right? We got to connect uh, virtually. And I remember you and I talking, saying, are you at home, Matt? And he's like, I'm at home. How's it going? It's, there's a shared thing. So but I still think we need to be back together in person. And I think being at advertising with, with you, with everyone is almost therapeutic. I think a combo is the best. It's what most people Yeah, say. no, I, I think so too. And listen, you know, the desire of people to be with other people, that's just how we're built. You know, whether you're, yeah. uh, you know, a coyote in the, in the, in the you know, mountains of West Virginia, or, you know, a couple of guys here in, you know, New York and Connecticut, you know, we want to <laughs> yeah, exactly. be, be with each other. Um, I think the utilitarian nature uh, of what Zoom and the other platforms have allowed is tremendous. Worked a hell of a, I would have lost the bet on how well, you know, we could all work this way. Um, and I think the way going forward is exactly as you said, a little bit of both. Um, a little bit more work-life balance, a little bit uh, of home connectivity, um, but I think being with your colleagues, you know, in person, because there's a serendipity that can only happen oh, yeah. by running into somebody or if somebody's yeah. you know, outside my office and I can say, hey, you know, come on in here. I got an idea. You know, it's a different. And if that person was sitting in Bethel or sitting in, you know, uh, Hoboken, you know, I would not think of them. 
you know, as I would as if I'm, you know, in my eye, you know, I'm looking out and seeing, you know, one of our people. Yeah, it's almost like at home, it's good for work where you need to do singular deep thinking, you know, on a deep challenge. Mm -hmm. But when you're trying to innovate and cross fertilize ideas, nothing beats in person. Yeah. You know, even that the, the time that we had together at Advertising Week with everyone, with my team there, like already the ideas and connections that came out. But it was great to go back home after that and yeah. just catch up and do some deep thinking, right? I think it's that up and down that makes it really a great combination. But interesting, the point you raised before uh, about like for engineers, and we were talking about cost of living, cost of housing, I guess for some jobs, it really is a pure plus. If you're sort of working in a solitary environment and you're able to live in a place that's more tax friendly or just price friendly overall, and that allows that company to keep that talented person. I hadn't really heard it put that way. That's an interesting point, I think. Yeah, the type of work. I mean, there's a lot of, I read a lot of the articles in the advertising press on, you know, creativity. How does this get done in the advertising world, you know, remotely? You know, what I do miss the most is a simple thing. I miss whiteboarding. I miss sitting at a team meeting and they're saying, when I don't understand what you're trying to say here, we're not seeing idea. Let's go to the whiteboard. And I would draw out the challenge visually. I think most people, you know, whether even they're, if they're very linear, linear type person with numbers, visual, visual reasoning and exploration is important, especially in marketing. Like if this is your big advertising idea, how would we know? I view it connecting like this. I miss whiteboarding tremendously. It's such a simple thing, but that visual exploration is greatly missed. Great. Well, well, well we're getting back there slowly but surely. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you doing this, and I, I enjoy our friendship tremendously. I'm delighted that it it would continue no matter what your business card said. But I'm delighted that your uh, people don't really have business cards anymore, by the way. I yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but we're delighted that our uh, friendship and our business partnership will continue uh, forward with Snap, another terrific, terrific company. You are literally going from strength to strength. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate the opportunity. Uh, we'll be partnering together. And you know, thank you for what you've done for our industry. I think you're one of those people who passionately sticks up for what advertising can do for people. And uh, it's a force. I think, you know, you know, your energy gets haloed on me and everyone else at Twitter and definitely at Snap where I'm headed to. So thank you so much, Matt. It's been tons of fun speaking with you. Thanks. And thanks so much for doing this.